1898, Walter Smith set sail with a young Guy Bradley and his older brother Lewis through the perilous waters of Florida Bay. The waters were rough that morning, the humidity thick, but Smith maneuvered his boat masterfully, reaching their destination at Oyster Keys. Smith had approached Guy and Lewis with a business proposition, hunting for cormorants, a black bird that many locals in Key West like to eat. The birds fetched a quarter apiece. It was a good opportunity for the Bradleys to form a partnership with Smith, and with the profits split three ways, it was easy money for Guy. But the hunting that drew the three men together would eventually be what tore them apart. Eight years later, the partnership would end in bloodshed on those same waters. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. You can find episodes of Assassinations and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Assassinations for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first of two episodes on Guy Bradley, described by many as the first environmental martyr. He was 35 when he was shot and killed by Walter Smith, a close family friend and former hunting partner. This week, we'll discuss the conflicts between Bradley and Smith that led to the conservationist's death on July 8, 1905. Next week, we'll discuss the aftermath of the murder, its impact on the local community, and its importance to the conservation movement in America. We'll also discuss what might have happened if Bradley's life hadn't been cut short. In 1904, Guy Bradley stood and listened to both sides of an argument on his family's waterfront property in Flamingo, Florida. The dispute was between his younger sister, Maggie, her husband, Bill Burton, and their longtime family friend, Walter Smith. Maggie and Bill's house shared a border with Smith's property. The Burtons accused Smith of encroaching on property lines. Smith denied the accusation, so Guy Bradley, who was a former land surveyor, was brought in to settle the dispute. Guy's survey concluded that indeed, Smith was encroaching on the Burtons' land. Smith was outraged. He took them to court to get a second opinion. The judge, once again, ruled in favor of the Burtons. Now Smith was really furious. Guy had once been his business and hunting partner, but this incident was the catalyst for a violent feud between Smith and the entire Bradley family. Someone would pay for this betrayal. Assassinations are often calculated vengeful plots, but Walter Smith's crime was impulsive, rooted in contempt. Smith lived by a certain moral code. He was a man of his word, and if he made a vow to exact revenge, he would 
always keep his promise. Walter Smith was born in 1843 in New Bern, North Carolina. His parents died when he was young, and he was raised by his uncles. When the Civil War broke out, an 18-year-old Smith enlisted in April of 1861 and wore the Rebel Gray. He was a sharpshooter as well as a scout, a skill set he would carry with him for the rest of his life. Smith initially believed in the Southern cause. However, the more entrenched he became in battle, the more he felt the cause was futile. The breaking point came when he fought in the Battle of Wilderness near Chancellorsville, Virginia. For two days, Lee's and Grant's men fought a vicious campaign. The land they fought on was dry from drought. The firing guns and cannons set the underbrush ablaze, and nearly 30,000 men were injured in the flames. Smith was among the wounded. A bullet ripped through his left arm, and a powder burn blinded his left eye. While he mended at Chimborazo Hospital, the 20-year-old Smith had time to contemplate his next step. War had tested his character. With the South destroyed and few opportunities to earn a living in North Carolina, Smith knew that once he was discharged, he would have to seek out more lucrative shores. So after the war, Smith returned to the sea. This wasn't his first time working as a sailor. Before the war, he had sailed all the way around Cape Horn and across the coast of Washington State. It wasn't easy work. He thought back on those experiences with dread. But after facing near-death situations in the Civil War, Smith's reservations about sailing had waned. He gave it another chance. But after a few years of calm waters, his old fears were proven correct. In 1870, Smith was caught in a storm off the Carolina coast and was swept overboard. Fortunately, Smith was a strong swimmer, and he made it to the shores of an island not far from Charleston, South Carolina. But the dangerous swim had left him weak and injured. He was rescued by friendly locals who tended to him while he recovered. He nearly died from pneumonia, but with their help, he made it through. After the war, the shipwreck, and the pneumonia, the 29-year-old Smith should have been a goner. But somehow he was still standing. He'd been saved by the grace of strangers, and now he needed to pay it forward. Once he mended, he asked his rescuers how he could repay his gratitude. Per their requests, Smith stayed on the island and found a job as a teacher. But after giving it a brief shot, he found the job tedious. Smith was a young man with ambition, and with a second chance at life, he thought the work and the island were too confined. He eventually settled in Honey Hill, South Carolina, where he met and married Nancy Rebecca Brinson in 1878. At the time of the wedding, Walter Smith was 36, and Nancy was 15. People in town liked Walter and Rebecca, but their dramatic age difference raised some eyebrows. Bizarrely, Smith called his wife daughter, while Nancy referred to him as captain. With Nancy by his side, Smith continued his search for a purpose. At the time, cities across the region were rapidly changing due to industrialization. The bucolic pastures were transformed into factories and railroads. 
Industrial waste was tossed into the water right off of coastal towns. While working as an oyster fisherman, Smith saw firsthand the destruction this progress was wreaking. He felt the need to escape the cacophony of modernity, and he found his solace in Florida's pioneer towns. In 1893, at the age of 50, Smith settled on the east coast of Florida in Lake Worth, where Palm Beach stands today. But in the early 20th century, Lake Worth was nothing like the tourist destination it is now. It was a place where people escaped debts, a hideout for wayward outlaws, and for vicious hunters looking for a quick buck. Smith felt at ease with its primitiveness, and most importantly, he liked the people. Smith took an immediate liking to Edwin Bradley, who was superintendent of schools in the region. He also bonded with Edwin's 23-year-old son, Guy, over their shared love of hunting and fishing. But even his new friends couldn't inspire Smith to sit still for long. In 1898, he moved further south to a remote fishing village near the Keys called Flamingo. Surrounded by the dangerous terrain of Florida's Everglades, Flamingo was harsh and rugged. It had been dubbed the end of the world. Smith settled in among the wilderness with his wife and four children, and he soon saw a familiar face, Edwin Bradley. Edwin had moved his family to Flamingo to take a position as a land agent for a railway company. The company's owner, industrial tycoon Henry Flagler, saw the undeveloped peninsula as an opportunity for expansion. It appeared Walter Smith couldn't escape modernity after all. The railway was coming. He either had to adapt or move once again. But this time, moving wasn't an option. He was already at the end of a world. On the upside, the land in Flamingo would surge in value once Flagler's trains were built. Smith hoped that with Edwin's connections, he could at least sell his land and make a pretty penny off the construction project. It would be just the break he needed as he eased into his 60s. While he waited for an offer from Flagler's railway company, he sought out another way to make a living in the meantime. He discovered he could make good money hunting for birds. In the far reaches of the Everglades, there lay a commodity more valuable than gold plume feathers from herons and egrets. Feathers were an important part of women's fashion at the time. From New York to Paris, plume-feathered headpieces were symbols of wealth and opulence. A high demand from hat makers meant that riches waited for plume hunters like Walter Smith. Smith put his sharpshooting skills from the Civil War to good use. He had found a new calling in life, and like many others, he perceived the Everglades as a bounty of infinite resources. It seemed like the well of opportunity would never run dry. And that opportunity was welcome, because he still hadn't been able to sell his property to Flagler's railway company. In fact, Edwin Bradley reluctantly informed him one day that the railway wouldn't be coming through after all. Flagler had abandoned his plans, turning his attention to building luxury hotels in West Palm Beach instead. Smith was outraged. His aspirations of wealth would never come to fruition. However, he had no ill will towards Edwin. 
at least not yet. Smith, however, still had hunting, but his days of hunting plumes were numbered too. In 1901, new laws were put in place forbidding the hunting of wild birds, except for turkeys and ducks. Without hunting, Smith needed a new source of income. He began to weigh the merits of political office. If he was in power, perhaps he could live above the law and hunt with impunity. Or having friends in politics could serve the same purpose. In January 1903, Edwin Bradley stepped down from his position as postmaster. Smith encouraged his brother-in-law, Dan Brinson, to take over the position. After a quick chat with Edwin Bradley, the deal was done and Brinson was sworn in. Having been a postmaster himself in Lake Worth, Smith was well equipped to help Brinson with his duties. He went door to door delivering mail with his brother-in-law and used the visits as an opportunity to make connections with his neighbors. He enjoyed retelling adventures from his days in the war and at sea. However, Brinson held the job for only six months before Edwin Bradley took over again. The reasons why Brinson left the position aren't clear, but it seems he and Edwin didn't part on good terms. After the shift, the relationship between Smith and Bradley began to deteriorate. To make matters worse, the state had recently hired a new game warden to patrol Florida's swamps and arrest illegal plume hunters like Smith. Initially, the savvy poacher was unconcerned. No outsider knew the land like he did. That was until Smith learned his identity. The new warden was Edwin's son, Guy Bradley. Walter Smith's life had been a series of failures. And it seemed like every time he found a way to success, one of the Bradleys was there to rip it away from him. As their friendship started to fray, Smith was nursing a venomous rage that would inevitably erupt into violence. Coming up, we'll dive into the events that led to Smith and Bradley's friendship unraveling. Now back to the story. According to the people who knew him, Guy Bradley was a short but rugged man with thinning hair and a bushy mustache. Others, like author Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, knew him as, quote, a pleasant, quiet man with blue eyes, always whistling, and a pretty good violinist. He was a pensive man who, much like Walter Smith, lived by a moral code of honor and loyalty. Guy Morell Bradley was born in Chicago in 1870 and grew up in Lake Worth, Florida. Like most kids who grew up on Florida's frontier, the daily tasks of chopping wood and planting potatoes became monotonous for the young guy. The Everglades were a vast, uncharted playground. The thrill of adventure beckoned him just outside the front door. When Guy was a teenager, he joined expeditions with noted French explorer and hunter Jean Chevalier. Known in the region as the Frenchman, Chevalier was something of a local folk hero. He eagerly welcomed Guy and his brother Louis on his voyages through the Everglades. Hunting proved to be the diversion Guy was longing for. He found that stalking his prey through the deep corners of the Everglades was not only exciting, but a good way to make a living. 
hunting became a way of life for him. But Bradley recognized the violence inherent to his hobby. In 1884, Chevalier accidentally fired his shotgun and blasted a hole through the middle of his hand. Guy saw the whole gruesome incident, but it didn't turn him off of hunting. In fact, it prepared him for the violence that would be all too common in his later years as a game warden. What did concern Guy were his encounters with the local Seminole and Miccosukee tribes. Guy befriended some of the tribe members and learned their customs. He was intrigued by their reverence for wildlife, how they viewed hunting not as a means for profit, but as a spiritual encounter between man and animal. These ideas led Guy to question his lifestyle. But he still had to make a living, so he kept hunting plumes with his family friend, Walter Smith. And yet the more he set out with Smith, the more he connected with his surroundings and the delicate wildlife that called Flamingo home. He grew remorseful of the senseless killing it became clear to Guy that instead of hunting, protecting these birds would be his mission in life. He wasn't the only one who felt that way. In February 1886, an amateur bird watcher named Frank Chapman walked the streets of New York's Ladies Mile District. He surveyed the women's hats and concluded that more than 160 bird species graced the top of these fashionable accessories. That same year, the American Ornithological Union estimated 5 million birds were slaughtered. Chapman, a skilled photographer, organized talks at the American Museum of Natural History. He gave attending guests a chilling glimpse into the devastation occurring in Florida's wilderness. It was a defining moment for hunters and conservationists across the country. But down south, Guy Bradley didn't need to see any photos. He was a living witness to the massacre. He no longer saw the fun in hunting. But with no laws in place, there was little Guy could do to protect the land. Instead, he tried to remove himself from the violence as much as possible, taking jobs as a boat captain and land surveyor. Meanwhile, he waited for change to come from the growing conservationist lobby. In 1898, the first Audubon societies formed across the United States. They were named after the famous painter and author John James Audubon, who, ironically, shot and killed birds as models for his paintings. The Audubon Society became an essential catalyst for conservation. Florida soon had its own chapter. In 1901, they assisted Governor William Sherman Jennings and State Senator W. Hunt Harris to pass a bill banning plume hunting in most of South Florida. Florida's leadership and the Audubon Society knew the arduous task they had in front of them. Many hunters would disregard the new law because it took away their means of making a living. They needed a game warden to patrol the wilderness and keep the hunters in line. The game warden would be responsible for a daunting swath of land, the Everglades, the Florida Keys, and the 10,000 islands. In early May of 1902, the Audubon Society found the perfect man for the job, Guy Bradley. The Society's vice president, Kirk Monroe, was friends with Edwin Bradley and had known Guy since he was a kid. 
He described Guy as a sturdy, fearless fellow filled with a righteous indignation against the wretches who are using every effort to kill off the few remaining birds. He knew of Guy's former life as a plume hunter as well, and that familiarity with the swamps and the local hunters made him a perfect candidate. In May of 1902, Guy accepted the job at a salary of $35 a month, worth roughly $1,000 today. At 32 years old, and with a shiny new badge on his chest, Guy Bradley was ready to begin his life's work. Guy took the job seriously. He knew every inch of the landscape, and he didn't shirk on punishing lawbreakers. The ordinance carried a jail sentence of 10 days, plus $5 for each bird that was found dead, the equivalent of a little over $140 per bird in today's money. But at the same time, Guy knew the locals, and he recognized that he stood between desperate hunters and their ability to make a living. Death threats and shootouts were a regular occurrence. The swamps were perilous, but the most dangerous creatures hovered above the water. Hunters were not afraid to use force to protect their way of life. On an expedition one day with conservationist Frank Chapman, Guy expressed his fears that one day he would be murdered. Coming up, we'll continue exploring the final days of Guy Bradley's life. Now, back to the story. After his appointment as game warden in 1902, 32-year-old Guy Bradley had numerous run-ins with hunters who disregarded the law. Some were even his old friends, such as a family from Flamingo, simply known as the Roberts Gang. On one occasion, Guy saw one of the Roberts Gang members with a boat full of dead plumes. Bradley walked onto the deck to arrest him and was greeted with an explosion that blew his glasses right off of his face. The stress of his career as a game warden wore on Guy. His wife, Froney, did what she could to lift his spirits, she had an unlikely talent as a boxer, and when Guy was under stress, she put on the gloves to entertain him. Guy once asked his friend, Lauren Roberts, to box with his wife. Lauren was surprised, but he accepted the invitation. When Lauren arrived at the house, he put on a pair of boxing gloves, ready to go easy on the little lady. He was quite surprised at how well Froney defended herself. She landed a few good blows and even brought him to the ground. Those moments of levity were rare. The next morning, Guy would have to return to his daily tasks, patrolling nesting sites and defending himself against hunters. One of his most formidable enemies was Walter Smith. Like Guy, Smith knew the terrain well, and he knew where he could hunt without getting caught. And worse, Smith was forming political alliances in nearby Key West and urging his connections to do something about the new hunting law. The test of his influence came during a dispute with Guy Bradley's brother-in-law, Bill Burton. Burton and Smith were neighbors, and he accused Smith of squatting on his side of the property. He took Smith to court in Key West, and he won. The dispute was childish. For instance, Burton testified under oath, accusing Smith of stealing his groceries. But it was Guy's testimony that settled the case. 
As a former land surveyor, he provided evidence that Smith was indeed encroaching on the land. After the verdict came down, Smith nursed a growing animosity for anyone bearing the Bradley name. Smith began to isolate himself from nearly everyone. He abandoned the friendly tasks he used to do for his neighbors, like using his boat to haul goods from Key West. His lone wolf mentality only fueled his hatred for Guy Bradley. Guy treated Smith with suspicion, but he still had a job to do and other hunters to focus on. Although he'd made strides in protecting the land, the local rookeries were raided with discouraging regularity. He often received tips from local citizens in an effort to keep one step ahead of the raiders. In 1904, one such tip came from an unexpected source, Walter Smith. He informed Guy that one of Steve Roberts' sons, part of the infamous Roberts gang, was planning a raid at the Cuthbert Rookery. Guy was suspicious. He responded emphatically, the bird business is my business. You attend to your own goddamn business and leave my business alone. A few days later, the Cuthbert Rookery was raided. Smith had been telling the truth. Guy found more than 400 corpses floating in the waters around the rookery. He described the scene saying, you could have walked right around the rookery on them birds' bodies. The slaughter was devastating, but it provided no end of delight to Smith. He spread the word of Guy's embarrassment far and wide, emphasizing that he tipped off the warden in advance and Guy had done nothing. Smith even asserted that Guy himself was in on the raid. He claimed, Bradley didn't stop it because he was part of the Roberts gang. He got a piece of the profits. He enforces the law against the small fry. Meanwhile, Guy failed to find conclusive evidence about who raided the rookery and was unable to make any arrests. He would have to be even more vigilant moving forward, and he knew just which hunter to focus on. In late 1904, Guy arrested Walter Smith and his oldest son, Tom, for illegally plume hunting. Earlier the next year, Guy arrested Tom again for another infraction. Walter Smith took his own arrests in stride, but when he saw Guy dragging his son home in handcuffs the second time, he was livid. Tom was only a teenager. He didn't deserve such harsh punishment. He screamed at Guy, you ever arrest one of my boys again, I'll kill you. Guy knew Smith was a man of action, and more importantly, a man of his word. He wouldn't make such a threat if he didn't mean it. But he couldn't back down, not in front of an old man like Smith. Instead, Guy repeated that if Smith broke the law, it would be enforced. Unsurprisingly, Smith continued to challenge his rival's authority. In late February of 1905, he tried to use his political ties in Key West to remove Guy Bradley from his post as game warden and deputy sheriff. He told the county commissioners, I'd be a better warden. Swear me in as deputy and I'll make sure Cuthbert Rookery is protected. However, Smith didn't realize that Bradley had been appointed by a recommendation from the governor's office 
More importantly, he wasn't aware that Bradley's pay came from the National Association of Audubon Societies. And the Audubon Society wanted nothing to do with a known hunter and rabble-rouser like Smith. Once again, he'd gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with Guy Bradley, and he'd been defeated. Guy's family had humiliated him in court. He'd arrested his son Tom. Now, the county commissioners had taken Guy's side, too. If Smith wanted to even the score, he had to do it on his own terms. Before he set sail for home, he made a purchase. A brand new Winchester 38. He made the decision. The next time he faced Guy Bradley, he'd be ready. The moment finally arrived in the early morning hours of July 8th, 1905. The air was still and silent until suddenly gunshots reverberated from across the water. Guy Bradley rose from bed, peered over the water, and saw a blue boat in the distance. He knew only one person with a boat like that, Walter Smith. Guy knew he would have to face Smith alone. He put on his clothes, said farewell to his wife, and set off, carrying his 32 caliber pistol. Frony stood out near the water's edge as Guy slowly disappeared into the distance. This was the last time she would see her husband alive. There was no wind that day, so Bradley took his small rowboat across the water instead of his usual sailboat. Soon, he came across Smith, docked on the shore of a small island. He was sitting on deck, alone but gunfire ripped from the thick vegetation. Smith's son had to be out there hunting. Smith saw Guy approaching, but due to low tide, he was stuck in a mud bank. The only thing he could do was wait as Bradley edged closer. He fired off a warning shot to get his son's attention. The warning came too late. When Guy edged closer, he saw dead birds flat across the floor of Smith's boat. He shouted at Smith, I want your son, Tom. Smith retorted, well, if you want him, you gotta have a warrant. Guy declared that Tom had broken the law and no warrant was needed. Smith argued back, if you want him, you have to come aboard this boat and take him. Guy replied, put down that rifle and I will come aboard. But Smith wasn't going to go along that easily. He took aim at his foe and fired. Startled by the sound, a flock of birds took off, vanishing into the open sky. The bullets tore through Bradley's collarbone and ripped open his chest. He died a slow death and likely in severe torment. Smith was a man of his word. He'd shot Bradley in cold blood. He sat there on his boat and waited for high tide to return. He finally arrived back onto shore at around 11 a.m. Smith would later say, Bradley never knew what hit him. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday with part two on Walter Smith's murder of Guy Bradley. We'll explore Smith's trial and the public response to Guy's death and how Guy may have served the conservationist cause better as a martyr than as a living warden. 
You can find all episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast shows like Assassinations for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Assassinations on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Assassinations in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Joel Stein, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Assassinations was written by Renee Thomas Rodriguez and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. Thank you.